Love, 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 yada, yada, yada. That's how the guy with a drink in his hand summarized his view of what the church had to offer. Unlike a lot of folks who redden in embarrassment and then drift away when discovering my occupation, this guy was only too eager to plunge right into his opinion of Christianity in general and the church in particular. No offense, he said, but as far as my experience is concerned, the church is full of hypocrites. Now, he had consumed his fair share of a certain single malt scotch that our host favored. I guessed he was noisier than usual and that I had inadvertently stepped into a conversation with an angry ex-churchgoer whose sense of appropriate boundaries had been dampened to a soggy fare-thee-well. I braced myself for what was coming next. But it turned out differently than I had anticipated, quite differently, actually. He did intone the standard litany of churchy sins, you know, pride and arrogance and out of touch and practice what you preach and so on. But after he got out, got that out of his system, he paused and told me a story from some years ago about his brother. This guy, he said, came from a church-going family. His younger brother had been especially active, even when they had become adults and drifted into their individual lives and careers, his brother immediately and always joined a local congregation. He did a lot in his congregation. Older brother was quite impressed by the sincerity and compassion of younger. Impressed and proud, actually. Younger brother even started a program for homeless families in the community, which made it all the more stunning when Younger received the letter from his church that he and his partner should probably find another sort of spiritual home that their so-called lifestyle conflicted with church standards. Then AIDS, and this was some years before the new advanced generation of drugs, As he told this story, my interlocutor took on a kind of humble, melancholic demeanor. Melancholic demeanor. He said that long ago he had quit asking the why question concerning his brother's premature death, but he hadn't let go of his questions and feelings about that church. Tell me, he said, why of all places, the place of the supposed love gospel, was it the church that had given his brother the most severe knee-jerk react rejection? And by the way, Reverend, wasn't that just the way the church so often responded to what it didn't know or didn't like? I suppose I could have said something about the church being a place for sinners, that the healthiest of churches understood that the major difference between those inside and those outside was that those inside knew this, which didn't make for perfection, of course, but under the right conditions made for lives that were 
constantly moving and growing heavenward. But I didn't say that at the time because it was clear that in addition to stumbling into an angry ex-churchgoer, I had also stumbled into a compassionate, thoughtful man. And he had a need to rehearse the story of grave rejection from a group of people who should have known better. In that sense, I was kind of his confessor. He's not alone in his lament, of course. Southern author and professed but struggling Christian Reynolds Price once wrote that Orthodox Christianity, the church in most of its past and present forms, has defaced and even reversed whole huge aspects of Jesus' teaching. But in no case has the church turned more culpably from his aim and his practice than in its hateful rejection of what it sees as outcasts, the whores and cheats, the traitors and killers, the baffled and stunned, the social outlaw, the maimed and the hideous contagious. It's pretty harsh. But it's only untrue to the extent that the other side of the truth is left unsaid, that the church, for all of that, is still the remarkable container for advancing the gospel it so imperfectly embodies. Its own message provides its own critique, which is as it must be given the burden of the message it bears. A human thing attempts to mediate a divine thing. The best that could ever be achieved are people saved by the very same love they announce God imparts, which they nevertheless routinely mangle. So just as sincere individuals get tangled up in fear and arrogance, the church bearing the love gospel stumbles over its collective fear and arrogance. But just as individuals can learn and grow, so too the church. Indeed, it has often managed to grow into a larger version of itself, not in all times and all places, of course, but in many times and places, nevertheless. I would humbly suggest to you that this is one of those times and one of those places. Certainly not perfectly, not fully mature, but with a bit of self-knowing about our limitations, we increasingly are coming to understand how love calls us to risk opening our arms and our hearts and our minds as wide as Jesus did. Our story from Acts tells of another time and place this risky behavior was embraced that was to change the church and the world. It's all the more remarkable given that the story is repeated three times by Luke. Evidently, this was a very, very important story for the early church. Almost as though he's saying to them, do you get it now? Here's the backdrop. After the resurrection, Peter emerged as a leader of the followers of Jesus. And the question arose as to whether or not Gentiles, non-Jews, could also be included in Jesus' salvation story. After all, there were strict laws that separated the Jews from other peoples, dietary and ritual requirements that sustained their 
uniqueness, their tribal identity, which was extremely important. They had been chosen by God, nurtured in a covenantal relationship. Wasn't Jesus, the Jew, the fulfillment of that covenant? Well, as our story begins today, some are criticizing Peter for his association with Gentiles. In response, he reports a rather remarkable vision that he had, in which he experienced every sort of animal, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air, is being presented to him. And a voice said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now these animals would have been anathema for Jews. In his vision he replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And again, this was because of the dietary laws that dictated what he could eat and with whom he could eat. He had never been guilty, he says, of eating unclean food. This would have caused revulsion within the Jewish community. But the voice and the vision came to him three times. Three times it said, get up and eat. Just then, several men appeared who were sent to him from a Roman officer, Cornelius. You might remember Cornelius, he's mentioned several times, a centurion, a Gentile, a member of the very army that had put Jesus to death and still oppressed and occupied Israel. Peter went, met with Cornelius, was astonished by how he had come to accept the way of Jesus in his life. Peter then baptized Cornelius. He ate with Cornelius and he came to understand the radical nature of his vision. The voice had said, don't call anything I have created unclean. The old limitations of us and them, insiders and outsiders, began to fall away. And the expansive, mind-blowing ramification of God's love became clear. It was a radical event. Minds were changed, lives were changed, and this changing became a healthy contagion. Peter was changed from the inside out. His worldview changed. His understanding of who was in and who was out changed. His capacity for love changed. It grew a thousandfold. As a result, the way of Jesus spread throughout the known world. And again, note that this lesson is embedded within our scriptures. This is a scriptural story telling us about the nature of God at work in the world. Forever challenging the relentlessly regressive human capitulation to fear and arrogance about the dreaded other Now, it was never an anything-goes religious evolution. On the contrary, it had the disciplines of the most rigorous sort of love as modeled by Jesus. But that very discipline led the faithful to understand that no prior condition prevented the reach of God's grace to any person. And as we know from our vantage point in the year 2016, this has been among 
the most difficult lessons to be learned. In fact, I might say this might be underneath, underneath all things, the most difficult lesson for us to learn. For all of us are tribalists of one sort or another, myself included. You all know this in the heart of hearts. You know who you like to associate with and who you don't like to associate with and all of the reasons for that. All of us fall out in this human condition. It seems every generation, every generation confronts the demands of this revelation and it always feels brand new. (laughs) It always feels brand new. And we always feel at risk. Every generation feels at risk. Who am I if I don't have my tribal identities, really? All of us, every generation has this problem, this problem with confessing our persistent practice of fencing off the righteous from the unrighteous, establishing crushing criteria for identifying and separating the dreaded other, whoever they may be, with arrogant and sometimes deadly posturing of our innate superiority. But whenever a generation manages to embrace this revelation, it can rise to the full height of its humanity. And we see that every once in a while throughout history. I was reminded of... um, You might have, I don't know if you saw on the news this week, politicians, presidential candidates, and the president talking about the busts that were moved or not moved in their offices. And turns out Obama had swapped Churchill for Martin King when Cruz was accused of being a racist, his defender said, well, he has a bust of Martin King on his desk. All that chatter got me thinking about Martin King and brought it back to mind. And I was reminded especially of his famous letter from a Birmingham City jail in which he was responding to a chorus of religious leaders who had asked him to dampen what they referred to as his extremist views. King wrote this in part. I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? Love your enemies and pray for them that despitefully use you? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was Paul not an extremist of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. So the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist will we be? 
Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Peter confronted the meaning of extreme love, you see. He certainly remembered the commandment Jesus announced the night of his betrayal, which you heard from the gospel today. And now as Peter tried to live into this commandment with integrity, he discovered that he had not nearly understood its full implications until it came to him unbidden in a dream. And it smashed him awake. (laughs) He had a small sentimental notion of love. And even then, he had to experience for himself how God was vitally present in someone he would have considered the other. Unclean, even a potential enemy. But there was evidence of God's grace in that man's life. And yet, come to think of it, didn't Jesus regularly associate with all of the wrong types Wasn't he constantly breaking down fences between people, obliterating them with love and compassion while bestowing simultaneously dignity and acceptance? You know, friends, these fences are a problem for us. A very big problem. And the thing is, we all have them. We all have our version of a version for the other, the unclean, the unacceptable, the challenging, the fearsome, in the words of Reynolds Price, the baffled and stunned, the social outlaw, the maimed and hideous contagious, however they manifest to us. And yet we have been assigned a powerful mission. When you stop to think about it, it's an absolutely stunning, extraordinary mission a revolutionary, world-transforming mission. I give you a new commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. In this way, by demonstrating your love, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. That's a very big deal.